Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 27. 1 Samuel, chapter 27. We're going to read this passage in a minute. Those of you we've been here in this book for a long time, you'll, some of you will be happy to know this is about the shortest chapter, I think, in the whole book. So it won't take us an hour to read the text. And uh, so if you turn there, we're going to read uh, in just a moment. I'm going to pray before we do that. And even before we do that, I'll take one step back. Today is October 1st. Seven years ago, in 2010, was the first day of Pastor Scott's ministry at Grace. So he has been serving here for seven years. He's reached a new pinnacle. And uh, we give thanks to God for his ministry in our congregation. Now, let's pray this morning, shall we? Father, we come before you and your word is open before us. How thankful we are to you for this opportunity to read it and think about it. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to what your word says. Lord, this morning as we gather together, we are mindful of the fact that we are one of about, among many churches in Lancaster County that are gathering together this morning and how grateful we are to you for these brothers and sisters and the, the witness that they share. This, they are outposts of the kingdom of heaven and uh, we share with them in their confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior. This morning we would think this, uh, of uh, Scott Davis at the Central Manor Church of God and Steve Cornell at Millersville Bible Church and Steve Cody at Zion Church of Millersville. These are just a few among our fellow congregations. And Lord, we pray that those churches today, that there would be joy in Jesus Christ there. Pray that you would bless them. Oh, Father, that they would see much fruit from the ministries that they support and that they host. We pray for unity in those churches as they seek to uh, make decisions and have budgets and uh, appoint leaders and, 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 and comfort and encourage each other in that, those congregations. We pray for unity among them. We pray that there would be increasing joy in those churches today. Oh, that Jesus would be glorified and that the people that are there would, would delight in it, that they would celebrate with great happiness the exaltation of Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would guard those churches from false teaching, from wolves, who would want to come in and ravish the sheep, the flock. Lord, uh, our desire is that the name of Jesus would be well known and loved in Manor Township and in um, Conestoga Township and Peckway Township and Lancaster Township and Lampeter Township and, and all around us. Uh, and we pray that you would work through your people to that end. Uh, change us, transform us, challenge us today as we look into your word. We pray again in Christ's name. Amen. Now, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 27, starting in verse 1. Remember, for seven chapters now, David has been on the run from Saul. And here he uh, plots. Verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. 
So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people have lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourself what your servants can do. Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh, Let's begin with some audience participation this morning. I want you to finish this sentence. I'm sure you've heard it. When the going gets tough, the... Exactly. I've always known that this was an above average intelligence church. I've known that. Um, You know that phrase, Uh, the phrase has been repeated endlessly, it's supposed to inspire you. Why does it inspire you? Because you're tough, and you're supposed to get going. That's what that sentence is supposed to do. It's a sentence about one of our cherished values, uh, perseverance. We want to be persevering people, that's how we imagine ourselves. We don't quit, except when we do. Uh, We should be honest, right? All of us have felt the temptation to quit, and it manifests itself in hundreds of ways. I I thought of a few. Have you ever quit your diet? Um, How about piano lessons? I begged my parents for three years to let me quit piano lessons, and then my teacher asked, and it was over, so that was good. (laughs) Uh, Did you ever quit a sport? Um, or, or some sort of creative project, you, you quit a, a quilt or a painting or a scarf or a novel or a diary. I have become increasingly comfortable over the last few years with uh, quitting books that I've been reading. Not that I'm writing, that I've been reading. I, I have a very active conscience. If you start, you ought to finish, especially if you buy that book. I don't do that anymore. Not all quitting is bad. If you're four foot six and you decide to quit the basketball team, I'm probably not going to complain. Uh, If you're tone deaf and you quit the oboe, I will probably send you a thank you note. right? On behalf of musicians and small dogs in your neighborhood, thank you, thank you for stopping. 
Uh, if you quit smoking, if you quit sleeping with your girlfriend, that's great. Uh, that's not the sort of quitting I have in mind. There is another sort of quitting, isn't there? Um, quitting that has more serious consequences. Quitting a budget. Quitting on your marriage. Quitting a church. I'm thinking about this because this troubled the author of Hebrews too. Uh, do you remember what he, he wrote? I, I wrote uh, some verses from chapter 10 down in the sermon notes. Look what Hebrews 10.23 says. The author of Hebrews says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, why did the author of Hebrews write this sentence? Presumably because there were people in his audience who were... Uh, tempted to let go of the hope that we profess. They wanted to quit. When we face with that temptation, we need help, so he said, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Where's the best context for that spurring on to happen? In our meetings. So he said, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I wonder if someone sitting next to you this morning if there's somebody sitting next to you for whom this verse falls with a particular weight, don't quit. Don't stop. Hold on to the hope that we profess. Don't let go of it. Don't you suppose you sit next to someone on a regular basis who's struggling with this temptation? I want to think about this this morning because of this scene in David's life in chapter 27 that we just read. There's some confe- uh, I will confess there's, there's some discussion about whether or not this scene is positive or negative. Is this David doing well or David doing poorly? Um, on the one hand, on the one hand, in this passage, David is charming. He, he moves to Gath, and he convinces Achish to let him move into town. How many people? David has 600 men with him, plus their wives and their children. It would not be difficult to imagine that he's traveling around with 2,500 people. And he convinces Achish to let, let him come in. That, that takes some charm, right? Um, David is cunning in this chapter. He fools King Achish again. David is successful in this chapter. He wins and he wins and he wins on the battlefield. He conquers Israel's enemies. He's doing what, uh, what Joshua started and what King Saul should have been doing. And yet, uh, what about the cost that Saul bears here? This is the second time that he goes to the Philistines for help. We read the first time a few weeks ago. Uh, it goes better this time. I wonder if you notice, though, as we were reading through, there is no mention of God at all in this chapter. His name is completely absent. David doesn't pray to him. David doesn't speak to him. David doesn't think about him. He, he's, he's completely absent. I'm not very positive about this chapter. If I had to boil this chapter down to its essence with, with, a, with an eye on how it applies, here's uh, what I would say. I think this chapter teaches us that following Jesus is costly. That's true. The Bible tells us this repeatedly. As followers of Jesus in this world, we experience all of the normal trouble that people experience. We lose our jobs. We get cancer. We have trouble in relationships. We have all the normal troubles that everybody has. On top of that, though, there are special troubles that are particularly ours. So following Jesus is costly. 
But not following him costs even more. I'm going to show you that in David's life. We're going to follow David on his downward path. I want to trace the decisions that he makes. I want to consider their consequences. I want to think about also what he could have done, what he might have done, what he should have done differently. Right? Let, let's trace his path. Four stages that David makes here. Here's the first one. David decides to escape to the Philistines. David decides to escape to the Philistines. David's trouble, I think, begins almost immediately. The chapter starts and it says, but David thought to himself. Now, I want to be careful. In the Old Testament, one of the ways you read narratives carefully, you have to recognize that sometimes these episodes, these scenes in the Bible, they can, they can turn on, on just phrases. Just little phrases can, can change how we understand and read these stories. Uh, I don't want to give this more weight than, than it should, but this is the first time in the whole book of Samuel we have David's inner monologue. It's the first time we get insight into what he's thinking. David thought to himself. He is counseling himself. He is giving himself advice. Do you ever give yourself advice? You give yourself advice all the time. I wonder if you're a wise counselor. Mm, well, let's think about David. Is David a wise counselor to himself here? He says, one of these days I'm going to be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Is that true? No, absolutely not. It's not true at all. Um, David's going to be king. He's not going to be destroyed by Saul. He's supposed to know this. He should know this. Samuel anointed him as king. Jonathan said he would be king. Abigail said he would be king. Saul even said he would be king. God told him that he would be king. So he's completely wrong here to say one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. He's wrong. All right, well, let's think about his second bit of advice here. He offers himself. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Again, is he right about this? Is this the best thing for David to do in these circumstances? And I think the chapter is going to bear this out that he's wrong again here. He's going to go to Gath. He's been to Gath before and he's going to go there. He gives himself bad advice. He follows his bad advice. And you know the worst thing that happens to him? It actually helps. Just a little bit. Verse 4, he was right. So when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. It, it worked at first. What is David tempted by in this passage? What else might be going through his mind as he's thinking about his situation. I, I, I tried to make a list of temptations that David might be facing. I, I wonder if this makes sense to you. Uh, David is facing the temptation to solve his own problems, to take matters into his own hands and fix things on, for himself. He's facing the temptation to escape. He's in a difficult situation. He's just going to run away. Some of you face that temptation. He's facing the temptation to doubt God's promises. God said he would be king. I'm not sure about that. He's facing the temptation to turn from his calling as God's anointed king. He's facing the temptation to abandon his mission. In chapter 26, a, a couple of weeks ago, we read where David had said to Saul, he said, you are chasing me out of the land and you're forcing me to go somewhere where they don't worship God. And actually, that's exactly what he's, he's doing. He just, he just can't see how God might possibly be at work in this situation. 
There are 150 psalms in the Bible. We're reading through them, right? We've made it up to Psalm 37, and by about 2025, we should be done, right? Um, Do you know that the question in the psalms, the question how long appears 65 times? David comes before God, and 65 times he says to him, most of them are his, he says, how long, how long, God, how long are you going to let me suffer? How long is this trouble going to last? How, when are you going to intervene? And in chapter 27, it appears that David is done with waiting. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to figure out something myself because I'm not waiting any longer. Do you know what that's like? Tim Allen was interviewed. Uh, Tim Allen, the actor, the comedian, was interviewed a few years ago and it appeared in the AARP magazine. Tim Allen, when he was 11 years old, his father was driving home from a college football game and a drunk driver came across the lane, uh, was going the other way, and hit the car and Tim Allen's father was killed. And he said, uh, that changed everything for me. You can imagine it would. He said, part of me still doesn't trust that everything will work out all right. It's 50 years ago. I knew my father was dead, but it was never satis- I was never satisfied with why he was dead. I wanted answers that minute from God. Do you think this is funny? Do you think this is necessary? And I've had, he says, a tumultuous relationship with my creator ever since. What are some of those questions David's asking? Do you think this is funny, God? that I'm out here, Saul's chasing me. Do you, is this really necessary? David here is making a godless decision. Now, I don't mean godless in the sense of just a moral repugnance, but in the sense that, that God doesn't matter, that God has no role to play, that, that David is making a decision as if God did not exist. Where's Gad the prophet? Do you remember Gad the prophet? He's he, he shown up in the text before. Where is Gad the prophet? And why didn't he go knock on David's door and say, Hey, David, have you thought about this? Why, why didn't David consult with the priest? Abiathar was there. He's done it before. Abiathar brought the ephod. He has the Urim and the Thummim with him, it seems like. What about Abigail? Do you remember Abigail? Beautiful, wonderful Abigail in chapter 25. She talked David down before. Why? Why isn't she? I can think of all kinds of people who might have intervened and helped here. And I I think that's the indictment of verse 1. David thought to himself. Be careful, brothers and sisters, when you are your only counselor. I listened to a podcast. It's hosted by a man by the name of Micah Freeze. He's a pastor of a pretty big church in Tennessee. And one of the things he said about himself recently is that he's a verbal processor. That means he, he enunciates every thought he has and he, he thinks about it, and uh, it's, verbalizing it is how he processes things. And um, <laughs> when he first started his church with his large staff, they'd sit around the table and he'd start doing this, and they, would be, they were horrified. Here's the senior pastor, they just hired him, and he starts talking, and they write down all of his ideas that come out of his mouth, and they're all terrible. Twelve terrible ideas, and they're thinking to themselves, "What are we going to do? This guy is nuts." And only after a few meetings did he finally figure out that that he was just thinking out loud, and he he actually didn't come to a decision until the end of the conversation. Don't write down the first twelve ideas because they're going to be terrible. It's the thirteenth that's going to be okay. Some of you, that's the way you make decisions, and there's no 
doubt in the minds of the people around you what you're thinking because you say it all. Some of you are the exact opposite of that, though, actually. You don't say anything at all to anyone. And sometimes those terrible ideas, they don't come out. They stick in your brain like fly on flypaper. I notice this chiefly in my marriage. Uh, I, I have ideas and thoughts about what I think is happening, and then, then finally when I enunciate the ideas that I have fully formed in my mind, I find out that my conclusions are not nearly as conclusive as I think they are. Um, how could I possibly be so wrong so often? Because I usually only have one counselor, and that counselor is me, and I'm not very good at it. Remember Hebrews 10? Encourage one another. Speak to one another. Max Lucado said this. I think this is very helpful. He said, Questions can make hermits out of us, driving us into hiding. Yet the cave has no answers. Christ distributes courage through community. He dissipates doubts through fellowship. He never deposits all knowledge in one person, but distributes pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to many. When you interlock your understanding with mine and we share our discoveries, when we mix, mingle, confess, and pray, Christ speaks. So David, the beginning of his downfall starts with this decision that he makes. Here's the second stage in David's downward path. David compromises his identity. David compromises his identity. The first time David shows up in Gath, it was uh, several chapters ago. Do you remember this? He showed up in Gath. He was alone, and the Philistines didn't know that there was conflict between Saul and David. So, so when they saw him, he was just a threat. So what did he do? He had to pretend to be crazy and escape. Now, the second time he comes, he brings with him a group of 2,500 people, maybe more, and the Philistines know that David and King Saul are in conflict, so they invite him in. Why? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they invite David in. Uh, And then there comes what I think is the worst sentence in this whole chapter. It's in verse 5. David says to Achish, Gath's getting a little crowded, so he wants to move out. And he says to verse 5, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Not a reasonable request. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? I think that is a terrible question. Why? David, you're not Achish's servant. You've never been Achish's servant. Goliath was Achish's servant. You're not Achish's servant. You're God's servant. You you may be Saul's servant, but you're not Achish's servant. He, David, appears here to have completely lost who he is and what God has called him to be. And Achish thinks this is genuine. This is one of, one of the delightful things about this story is how they make fun of the Philistines. The whole book of Samuel just pokes fun at these people. And, and Achish comes to the conclusion in, in chapter 28, well, he's going to be my servant for life. It's going to be great. We'll talk about Achish's foolishness in a few minutes more. <laughs> Uh, This situation, David, you're you're compromising who you are and what God has called you to be and to do. It reminds me how often the Apostle Paul appeals to believers in the church that he wrote to about their identity, who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them. There's a lot of examples, but look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Again, I wrote it on the note sheet so you can see there. Or do you not know, Paul writes, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with, uh, with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. That, that's what you were. That's what you were. Here's what you have become. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this chapter also, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Or verse 19, Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? I want to paraphrase Paul a little bit. David? David? Don't you know that you're the anointed king? Don't you know whose servant you are? David, and and apparently the Corinthians, are acting in a way that is wholly inconsistent with what God has done for them, who he's called them to be. There are always going to be inconsistencies like this in this life, in, in the lives of followers of Jesus. I wonder how well you know your inconsistencies. I wonder how, how aware you are of them, how well you can identify them. Well, it's inconsistent for a follower of Jesus to engage in sexual morality and idolatry and slander and greed and thievery. It's inconsistent for David to pledge himself to another king because he's... He has one already. Now, here's the third stage in David's downward path. David schemes his way to success. He schemes his way to success. So David and his men and their families, they move to Ziklag, and they start raiding cities around them. Now, I wonder how you evaluate what's happening here. On the one hand, this is very cunning. Um, these are nations that are in the land that God had promised to Israel. They don't belong there. God had told the Israelites to destroy them because these nations have just a, a, a terrible record of grievous wickedness. Um, Saul should have been attacking the Amalekites, but he did not, and David is. And he's killing all of the people in these cities that he's raiding. He's keeping the livestock as, as plunder, though. And the text tells us twice in verses 9 and 11 that he's killing all of the people. Now, why is he killing all of the people? The reason he's killing them, the text says, is because of his lies to Achish. He told Achish he was killing Israel's enemies, but he told Achish that he's raiding areas that belong to Israel. It's very cunning. It's, uh, it's deceptive and manipulative and dishonest. Very cunning. Again, what's lacking in this passage is any sort of, of divine input or any sort of divine counsel. There's no sense in which God's word is challenging or confronting or controlling David's decisions. If that happens to you, it is a sign that you are in trouble. Do you remember, I have said this before, but Tim Keller says that one of the ways that you know your relationship with God is real is if God's word is regularly confronting you contradicting you, challenging you. If you find yourself explaining away every passage of the Bible that tells you you must not do what you want to do, then you don't have a real relationship with the real God. When I was a teenager, we hosted a, a dog in our house for a week. We had a dog, and she was a Labrador retriever. Uh, her name was Barkley. We got her uh, from Sesame Street. That's where we got the name. 
and um, she, Barkley came to our house. She was a gift to our family from my dad's boss, Mr. Stem. Mr. Stem had a Labrador Retriever too. Her name was Molly, and Molly came to stay with us for a week. And one day uh, I took Molly. I thought it would be fun to take Molly and Barkley for a walk, both of them. So I put Molly's leash on her, and I put Barkley's leash on her, and off I went down the street walking these two dogs. If you're thoughtful, you immediately see the problem that I'm going to have. Happened when we came to the first tree. Because Molly wanted to go this way around the tree, and Barkley wanted to go this way around the tree. Here I was. <laughs> uh, stuck. So, if, 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 and think with me about this here for a minute. The dogs, both the dogs, they want to move forward. That's where they want to go. We're on our way walking. But in order for them to go forward, they're going to have to go backward. At least one of them. This made no sense to the dogs. I was unable to explain it to them with all of my persuasive powers. Right? C.S. Lewis says this is the way that we respond often to God's commands. The way that, that Barkley and Molly felt my tugs on the leash. If you want to go anywhere, you have to come back. You have to come back here. If you want to make any progress at all, you have got to come back. David, you need to come back. You need to, to, to again, consider what would God have me do in this situation. You need to turn around, David. But, but David is godless. Now here's the, the final stage in this downward path. David ends up in a precarious position. He ends up in a precarious position. Eventually, as, as this story progresses, the Philistines and the Israelites gear up for war. And Achish is sure that David is on his side. Remember, Achish thinks that David has been raiding Israel. So he thinks to himself, well, doesn't he say in verse 12, David has just made his, himself obnoxious to his people, so he will be my servant for life. And when it comes time, Achish thinks that David's on his side. So the Philistines and the Israelites are going to go to war. And uh, 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 he, I, this is wonderful. Verse 1, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David says, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. Isn't that wonderfully ambiguous? He's not really saying anything. Now, just as an aside, Achish says, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. Now, literally, uh, that, uh, Achish is saying, I'll make you the keeper of my head. Do you remember the last time David kept a Philistine's head? <laughs> he kept it as a souvenir, right? Can you imagine what happens after this conversation? What's David going to do? He comes home. Abigail says, hey, what did Achish say? He says, we're going to war with the Israelites. Oh. He says I, he wants me to fight on his side. Oh. What are you going to do, David? I don't know. I told him he'd see what we could do. What are you going to do? I don't know. He's put, he's put himself in this situation. The point of this passage is that David's doubts... His fears have led him to this impossible situation. It looks like he's managing things really well. It looks like he's succeeded. Well, he just goes to Gath and he, he can kill Israel's enemies and tell Achish he's not killing Israel, he's killing Israelites. And it looks like it's gone really well. But that, no. He, he put himself in this situation. He is 
out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? Remember, following Jesus is costly. Not following him costs even more. Those solutions that you think you have found that will solve your problem, that are godless, that, that, that just appear to be so much easier and simpler, they will put you in precarious positions. Now I have to say that the artistry of this text is that it's a long time before we find an answer to what happens. Dun, dun, dun. Cliffhanger. Because immediately in chapter 28, we, we go back to Saul. What's going to happen to David? What's he going to do? We actually don't find out till chapter 29, and I'm afraid to tell you that we're not going to look at chapter 29 for, for some weeks. We're, starting next week, we're going to, we're going to spend um, five weeks talking about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, I'll talk more about that next Sunday. What's going to happen to David here? If he's going to be rescued, it's, it will only be because God is going to have to rescue him. This is his only way out. Uh, David... Uh, has ignored God for some time, and if he's going to get out of this, it's because God is going to intervene. We're used to situations like that, aren't we, brothers and sisters? It would be tempting God to intentionally put yourself in this situation. But this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, We're going to eat this bread, and we're going to drink juice, and, and we do it together in our common confession that we were in such a state that our only hope was that God would rescue us. Oh, we're used to situations in chapter 27, aren't we? Huh. The, the only hope for, for David is God's going to have to do something for him. David thought he was so clever and he made a mess. The mess that we make is not the same as this. The mess that we make is the product of our sin, the product of our rebellion against God. God is just and sinners in the world that God has made deserve death. And, and the wages of sin is death, Paul Wrote. That's what we deserve. We're in this terrible situation left to ourselves. But God rescues us through his son. The Lord Jesus, he's, he's our substitute. He died on the cross for our sins and in our place and he rose again. It seems almost impossible to believe this, but believing this is how you become a, a Christian. Through your faith, your, your confident trust in the Lord Jesus, God forgives you and gives you life. We are well aware. We know exactly what it's like, isn't it? don't we, to to be put in a hopeless situation where only God can help. This situation isn't all that strange. Following Jesus is costly. Not following Jesus costs even more. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and... uh, we see David and his faith is wavering. And, and we are familiar with what that is like. Lord, I, I know that there are men and women this morning who are aware of this great temptation to find their own way out. They've asked you, how long, how long, how long, how long? And, and compromise would just be so easy. And, and cutting corners and scheming, would, would, it would, it, it's so attractive. It just seems like it would solve all of the problems. 
Oh, Father, we, we pray that you would encourage us in your word, that you would, we would heed this warning of the precarious positions that we put ourselves in when we try to find that way out. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you carry us and rescue us from our own stupidity and the own messes that we make. Thank you that we celebrate that even this morning as we mark the Lord's death and resurrection. Draw us close to you, Father, that we might decide wisely when we are in fearful places. Help us, help us, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen.